0: Alright, well I'm going to put that one down and, and transition here. Um, it, it is good to be back with uh, everybody this morning as we continue our our walk through 1 Kings and the lessons that we're learning from the period of the divided kingdom in, in Israel's history. Uh, and it, it's amazing to me every time I prepare to teach just how much there is even in an Old Testament narrative. It's, uh, it's not shocking because we know that to be true, but it's always surprising how much is there. Uh, and certainly this week was a challenge for me personally as I prepared looking at, at my own heart. But as we begin, I want to go back to October 24th, 1415. And on that date, an extremely important battle in Europe occurred. It was the Battle of Agincourt. King Henry V was leading a British army across the French countryside of about 6,000 men. And they had already laid siege to a French town. It took a lot longer than they thought. After this extended siege, they marched 200 miles inland towards France, and they were intercepted by a French army. Now, the French army, unlike the British, was fresh. They weren't tired. They weren't coming off a siege or a 200-mile march. The British were suffering from disease. They were far from home, but the French were fresh. They were healthy. They were fighting on their own turf, and there was 30,000 of them, so they outnumbered the British five to one. All of the tactical advantages were in the French court. This should have been an easy victory. They were set up for success. Unfortunately, the outcome for the French was quite different. The English set up their line in the middle of a field between two small hills by the city of of Agincourt, just to the east. And the French, through carelessness and overconfidence, decided to march their army right down the middle of the field towards the British. They neglected the fact that it had been raining for three days and the field was muddy, And they neglected the fact that the English longbows had a much longer range than their own. So as the French slogged through the muddy field to try to reach the British, the rain of arrows was pouring down on them, and they were completely routed. The battle only lasted about three hours, and the French sustained ten times the casualties of the British. They were spectacularly defeated by a combination of careless tactics and overconfidence. That's exactly what we're going to see today as we look at the reign of Rehoboam, the last three chapters that we've been studying all the way from the middle of chapter 11 through the middle of chapter 14 have focused on Jeroboam in the north. Right, the, the ten tribes that were separated, uh, referred to as the kingdom of Israel, and, and now the author turns his attention back to the southern kingdom of Judah. And while Jeroboam got three chapters, Rehoboam in the south gets ten verses. That's what we're going to look at today, 1 Kings 14, 21-31. And there's only 10 verses here to go over Rehoboam's reign, but there is an immense amount to learn. And just like the French at Agincourt, Rehoboam seems to be set up for an easy, successful reign as a God-fearing king. We're going to see that everything is going his way. But like the French, that's not the outcome that we're going to find. As we walk through these 10 verses, we'll see that Really, the the theme in this passage that the author provides to us is that even during circumstances where, where seemingly we have everything we need for success, spiritually, if we're not careful in the way that we approach God in our own hearts, we may end up in a situation where God is required to discipline us, but even in that we'll see his grace. So let's look at that this morning. So if you haven't already, open up to 1 Kings 14. And for now, we'll just read the the first verse as we open up this section. 1 Kings 14, 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And we'll stop there. We're going to see that that this one verse, and and some that we'll look at in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles, sets up Rehoboam well, for success, the first thing we see is it. It says Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Well, right there, there's a, a tick mark in his advantage category. His father was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. That's a pretty good thing to have in your court. Right? He was the son of Solomon, and we're told he was 41. Unlike some of the kings who came to the throne when they were really young and inexperienced, Rehoboam is 41. He's old enough to have some life experience to have developed some wisdom. Not only of his own, but he's old enough to have learned from Solomon's wisdom when Solomon was still young and following after the Lord wholeheartedly. We know in his later days he, he departed from that, but Rehoboam's old enough to have seen him when he was following the Lord. Now what about his grandfather? Rehoboam's grandfather was, was a legend in Israel, King David. So he's got David who wrote the Psalms and Solomon who wrote the Proverbs. All that he was brought up with, so he has all of that in his toolkit to reign as a king. Things like Psalm 25:14, written by his grandfather. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Or Proverbs 21:30, written by his father. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. This is the earthly legacy that Rehoboam has to draw on. But even more really than the earthly legacy is the divine presence. In verse 21, we're told, not only was he the son of Solomon at 41 years old, but it says he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. That's an important description of, the, of Jerusalem, but why does the author give it? He's writing to a Jewish audience. He doesn't have to describe what Jerusalem is. They're well acquainted with how important it is. Why does he say this? He's reminding them that Rehoboam, unlike Jeroboam in the north, reigned in the very city where God had a tangible, physical presence in the temple. The temple sat at the the top of the hill in Jerusalem where everyone looked up to it and could see it. And if you remember from 1 Kings 8, when we studied the life of Solomon, after Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory cloud of the Lord resided in the temple. 1 Kings 8.10 says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That was still the case in Rehoboam's day. And if you recall from 1 Kings chapter 6, when the temple was constructed, there were slits in the top of it so that the glory cloud and the smoke from the temple would emanate from the temple and it could be seen all throughout the city of Jerusalem. God wanted his people to know he was there and he was with them. And this is the location in which Rehoboam is reigning. That's an important bonus. So we had a, a divine presence. Now, for the rest of these, we're going to turn over to a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles. If you have something to mark that, go ahead and do so. Scrap a paper, a pen. We're going to be flipping back and forth between the two. Parallel, chron- or parallel passage in Second Chronicles. We'll be reading the end of chapter 11 and, and later on the first part of chapter 12. For now, if you look at uh, First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, rather, eleven, beginning in verse five, we read this: Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. Thus he built Bethlehem, Etem, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marisha, Ziph, Adoraim, Lachish, Ezekah, Zora, Ajalon, and Hebron, which are fortified cities in Judah and in Benjamin. He also strengthened the fortresses and put officers in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. He put shields and spears in every city and strengthened them greatly, so he held Judah and Benjamin. What we see here is that not only did Rehoboam reign in a place with a divine presence, but he had a defended position. He built Judah up to be militarily untouchable. He built all these fortresses, he stocked them with with weapons of war and with officers of a standing military. He could do this, again, thanks to his father and grandfather, because David and Solomon were both extremely wealthy and had amassed a ton of resources. At this point, under Solomon, Israel was the wealthiest nation in the area. And Rehoboam has all of these resources to draw on, so he builds Judah out to be a military powerhouse. Again, a great place to start as king. And finally, 2 Chronicles eleven thirteen through 17 The next few verses give us another clue to his setup for success. It says, Moreover, the priests and Levites, who were in all Israel, stood with him from all their districts. For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam, remember, he's the king in the north, and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He, that is Jeroboam, set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satyrs and the calves which he had made, Those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam and the son of Solomon for three years, for they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. You got to see what's happening here. Jeroboam, we read earlier, set up his own false idols in Dan and Bethel. He refused to let anyone go to Jerusalem to worship the way God prescribed because he didn't want them to leave his kingdom. And he set up his own priests. Remember, the priests were, were set up by God. The Levites were the tribe chosen to, ask as, or to act as the priests. And they didn't have their own territory. Recall that when Israel came into the promised land and, and all the tribes were given land, the Levites didn't get any. Instead, what they got were 48 cities that would be their own cities, four in each of the other tribes, and that's where they lived so that they could minister to the whole nation. The Levites had two primary duties. The first was to carry out the sacrificial system prescribed in the Mosaic law. But for that, they had to go to Jerusalem. The second major duty was to teach the law to the people of Israel. But what you have now is, because Jeroboam has set up false priests, all of the Levites in the northern ten tribes are leaving and immigrating to Judah. They're fleeing the northern kingdom. And as they go, we're told that all of those from the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them. So all the priests that God ordained are leaving Israel and moving south into Judah, and all the people in Israel in the north that are devoted to worshiping God the way that he said they should worship him, rather than the way Jeroboam said, are going with them. There's a mass influx to Rehoboam's kingdom of every priest and devoted person in the northern kingdom a huge immigration of God-fearing, devoted people. That's his third setup for success. You can't get any better than this. He's reigning in a city where God chose to put a tangible reminder of his presence. He has resources aplenty and has built the kingdom out to be militarily secure, and he has a people that is defined by a huge immigration of Levites and, and those devoted to the Lord a setup the next several verses should just say and Rehoboam served the Lord faithfully next story it's not quite what we find the next thing we're going to see in the next observation in this passage is the consequences of comfort and carelessness turn back to our primary passage in first Kings 14 we see a, a piece of the puzzle at the very end of verse 21 and then in verses 22 to 24 the wheels really come off the cart here the end of verse 21 says, And his mother's name, speaking of Rehoboam, his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and Asherim on every high hill and, sac- oh, and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Well, that's not exactly the outcome one would expect from the setup that Rehoboam was given, is it? All of those things he had to his advantage, and this is what we see happening. The, the first piece there at the end of verse 21, Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. She was not a Jew. This was one of the many wives Solomon took from the nations surrounding the nation of Israel, which was forbidden by God. And in Ammon, they served the god Moloch. If you recall, when we studied through 1 Kings 11, Solomon, at the end of his life, when he deviated from being devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord, built a temple to Moloch. So Rehoboam's mother certainly has an influence on the direction of his heart in worship. She's an Ammonitess, not an Israelite. So part of this unfortunate outcome that we see is, is his mother, but it's not just that. We're told that they provoked God to jealousy. And we've got to take a minute to remember how God saw his relationship with his people. It wasn't just a, a king-to-subordinate relationship or a, a leader-to-follower relationship. God saw his people as his bride. We read this in Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And even more direct in Isaiah 62, 4b and 5b, God speaking through Isaiah to the Israelites says, But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God saw his people as a bride. So their idolatry that we see in verses 22 to 24 was a personal act of infidelity against God, and that's how he saw it. But not only did they provoke him to jealousy because of their their spiritual infidelity, but verse 22 says they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done. Now we can read over that and just be like, okay, it was bad. No, it was really bad. This was not the first time Israel had fallen into idolatry. This had happened many times, but under Rehoboam, it was worse than everything in the past. If you recall, I mean, as soon as the Israelites left Egypt, right, they, they undergo the, the ten plagues and the exodus, right, this unbelievable display of God's sovereign covenant power, and they'd barely been gone, and they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses is up there for 40 days, so what does everyone at the bottom of the mountain do? They worship a golden calf, right? Right? really that didn't take long and it doesn't stop there after the wilderness wanderings they get into the promised land god again miraculously delivers them a kingdom with things like the battle of jericho where it's obvious that it's not the israelites military might that is delivering this kingdom to them it's god and yet we read in judges two twelve, and they forsook the lord the god of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them thus they provoked the lord to anger that was the beginning of the book of judges and you guys know the rest of the book of judges is the same it's a repeated cycle of israel leaving faithfulness to god and god bringing somebody to correct them and bring their hearts back to him and then they leave again and then he brings another nation and corrects them so idolatry was not new to israel so when the author here says that the idolatry under rehoboam was worse than anything that had come before in the nation it was bad Not just idolatry, but, but worse in three main ways. First, worse in magnitude. We read in verse 23, for they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. It was widespread. They were no longer content to worship gods like Moloch in the temple that Solomon built. Now it's everywhere. You didn't want to take the time to go to the temple of Moloch? Fine, we'll just set up a little shrine on this hill and then one over here and one on this road. These high places and ashram and sacred pillars were the places where gods like Moloch and Asherah were worshipped. Moloch was the god of the Ammonites, and often the worship of Moloch included child sacrifice. Israelites had been warned about this before they ever entered the promised land. God told them through Moses, this is going to happen, this is the kind of thing that's going on, don't do it. In fact, in Leviticus 22, he says this, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. God says, this is detestable. Anybody does this, you need to maintain your purity in the nation by delivering the death sentence. Except now, not only are they not giving the death sentence to whoever's doing it, everyone's doing it, everywhere. It was worse in magnitude. It says they set up Asherim. That was where they worshipped Asherah, the god of the Canaanites. Or goddess, I should say. She was a fertility goddess. So you can imagine what the religious rituals surrounding her worship were like. This idolatry was was worse in magnitude. It was worse in application. We're told there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. In verse 24. The word for male cult prostitutes may indicate strictly male. Or it can also be used in other contexts to indicate both male and female. But regardless... The the idea of cult prostitutes was not new to the surrounding nations. This was a common practice in places like Ammon and Moab and Canaan. But this was a bit new to Israel. Apparently they had been able to keep themselves, although they were idolatrous frequently in the past, they'd been able to keep themselves away from this particular sin because there's no mention of cult prostitutes in Israel's idolatry history all the way from Genesis 38 to 1 Kings 14. It's not mentioned anywhere in there until now. So It was worse in application. They're doing things in, it, in their idolatrous worship now that they haven't even done in the past. And finally, it was worse in lack of God-focused gratitude. The end of verse 24. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. The author takes time here to point out the irony in the fact that God, as we mentioned before, through miraculous conquest gave this kingdom to the Israelites. And despite the fact that he chased all these nations out, when they possessed the land, rather than focusing on God, the one who gave them the kingdom, they go off and chase the ones that were chased out. I mean, you think about this. This is like a, a father waking up in the middle of the night and, and hearing robbers in the house downstairs, right? He's upstairs with his wife and kids. He hears robbers in the house and, and he knows you know, if these robbers think they're going to get caught, they're, they're going to get violent, right? They may hurt my family if, if it means they might get caught. So he goes downstairs to confront them. He goes downstairs, confronts the robbers through his, his own service to his family, chases them off, right? He, he walks outside and watches them run down the street after he's chased them off. And he goes back into the house to tell his family, it's all good, everything's clear, you're safe. I took care of you. But he walks into the house and it's empty. It's like, wh- where'd the wife and kids go? And he walks back outside to the street, and up the street where the criminals fled, he sees his wife and children running up the street, yelling after the criminals and asking if they can join their gang. That's what's going on here. God chased these idolatrous nations out of the kingdom, gave it to his bride, and then his bride went running after the people that he chased out. That's got to leave a mark. That's the unfortunate outcome. Quite the contrast from the setup for success that Rehoboam was given. Well, what about the reason? 2 Chronicles, the author there continues to give us a little more on the reason. The author in Kings merely states that, that something happens, but, but the Chronicles gives us a deeper look. If you look at 2 uh, Chronicles, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Now we read, when we talked about the Levites all coming down and all the devoted people from Israel, they came down and it says they strengthened the kingdom and supported Rehoboam for three years because they walked in the ways of David and Solomon. So they were obedient for three years. Somewhere in the fourth year, the wheels came off the cart And and this is why. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong. That word established means firm, fixed, stable. The kingdom was prosperous. They weren't lacking for anything. There was plenty of resources amassed by Solomon, the wealthiest man most likely in history, even accounting for inflation. So they were established. They weren't worried where... Where their resources, where their food, where anything was coming from. Trade was good. So they're prosperous. And then it says, when they were established and strong. That word means exactly what you think it would mean. And that goes back to Rehoboam building all these fortresses and equipping a standing army. So they were secure. So they were comfortable. It says, when they were established and strong, they forsook the Lord. They got comfortable. Things are going well. We've got wealth, we've got trade, we've got prosperity, and we've got security. Everything's good. Now, I doubt it was a conscious choice. They probably likely didn't say, we don't need Yahweh anymore, now that we have resources and we have all these fortresses. Rather, it was likely just a, a slow shift of forgetting to rely on God. They relied on him early in the reign, but after things were really up and going, eh, they just kind of went elsewhere for their reliance and their security. One commentator put it this way, As long as Rehoboam thought his throne tottered, he kept to his duty that he might make God his friend. But when he found the kingdom stood firmly, he thought he had no more occasion for religion. He was safe enough without it. Now, this wasn't new. God actually warned the Israelites this was going to happen again before they ever entered the promised land. (laughs) <laughs> There's so much prophecy fulfillment in Kings. If you go back and look at what God told them was going to happen in Deuteronomy, and then you look at what happens in the account of First and Second Kings, it's all fulfilled. Deuteronomy 31.20, God says this, For when I bring my people into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Not surprising to God that comfort would have this kind of a result. That's one of the reasons for this unfortunate outcome. The other is carelessness. Look down at chapter 12, verse 14 in 2 Chronicles. 12, 14. Summing up Rehoboam's reign here, the author of Chronicles says this, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He was spiritually careless. He didn't set his heart To seek the Lord. That word set means firm, established, secure. Sound familiar? It's the exact same word that's used in chapter 12, verse 1, when it says his kingdom was established. It was set, it was fixed. Same word. So we have the fact that Rehoboam's kingdom was established, but his heart was not. He wasn't committed to following Yahweh. He may have done it for the first couple years when he wasn't sure how things were going to shake out. But he wasn't committed, so as soon as things looked like they were working out okay, he lost his focus. He was Spiritually careless. And when we studied 1 Kings 11, we talked about how Solomon's heart wandered. He didn't cease to worship Yahweh, he just added worship of other gods to it. Rehoboam is doing the same thing. He's neglecting to make sure that his to-worship list has one and only one item on it the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That should be the only thing on his worship list, and it was not. He didn't set his heart. He didn't take pains, take care. He was not careful and diligent to seek the Lord, and so we're told he did evil. So what's the application for this first part for us? Understand that you and I are set up for spiritual success the same way Rehoboam. We have all of the same advantages. Think about it. Rehoboam was in Jerusalem with God's divine presence there. The author makes sure he, he reminds us of that. The fact that you're in this room this morning means you are attending a biblically sound, doctrinally secure, God-fearing church. We're told when two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he's in their midst. You are in the same kind of divine presence that Rehoboam was reigning in just by sitting here this morning. He was militarily secure. His external circumstances were solid. So are ours. We may not think about it that way all the time. We may wish we had more money or more this or more that, but when you woke up this morning, you didn't wonder where your next meal was coming from. When you got ready to come here to church, you didn't have to wonder if you had anything to wear. In fact, there was probably angst on which one of the things you were going to wear. And when you parked in the parking lot this morning to walk in here, you didn't think, I wonder if this is the week I get arrested for going to church. We're secure. Our external circumstances, just like Rehoboam, are established. We have that same kind of security. Remember, his third setup was a devoted people. He was surrounded by all the Levites and the devoted people. Worshippers who flooded in from the northern kingdom of Israel, again, by the fact that you're sitting in this room, you are surrounded by God-fearing people as well. We're set up for success, and that's a good thing. And yet, Rehoboam led Judah into the worst apostasy and idolatry the country had ever known. The setup is a blessing, but it's not a guarantee. We saw why Rehoboam failed. We have to make sure we're not doing the same thing. We have to be careful. Comfort breeds self-sufficiency. You and I, like Rehoboam and everyone in Judah at the time, were comfortable. We are prosperous, despite the fact that there may be various ways to define that. In the big picture, we are all prosperous and we are secure in our environment, in where we live. Comfort can breed self-sufficiency. Again, not, not intentionally, I don't think anyone in this room would say, I no longer have a need for God. No, what happens is we just forget to rely on him. We're relying on our bank account, on the fact that our kids are doing well in school, on the fact that we, we have a good church to go to. And we rely on all those circumstances, but we don't set our heart to seek the Lord. We can become careless in our spiritual negligence just the same way that Rehoboam did. You know, our hearts are made to worship. That's how God designed them. They're going to. They're kind of like a fire hose. You guys ever seen pictures or movies of firemen wielding a fire hose? There's a ton of pressure that comes out of that thing. So whenever they do it, there's more than one person on the hose. Right, they have to have multiple guys to make sure that that hose is directed where it needs to go at the fire. If they don't and it gets out of control, it's going to spray wherever it wants to. Now they got to go chase it down and redirect it back to where it should be. That's what our hearts are like. They're going to worship. There's a pressure to worship in every human heart because that's how God designed it. We have to focus that worship where it ought to be. We have to take care and take pains to make sure that our two worship list contains one and only one item. The one true God. Otherwise, our heart will worship whatever comes our way. We have to set our hearts to seek the Lord. How do we do that? Read the word daily. Like Bereans, right? We talked about that in the beginning of this study. Bereans read the word daily and eagerly. That was part of why they were called noble. We ought to be in the word daily. If the only time you open your Bible is when you're at this building or at home fellowship, then there's some spiritual carelessness there that can be addressed. Read it daily and eagerly and pray consistently and fervently. If we're not going to the Lord with what's on our hearts, then we're not taking advantage of our circumstances. The third observation we see from our text today is what happens as a result. Rehoboam was set up for success. Unfortunately, he spectacularly failed. And so here is the rest of the story, beginning in verse 25 in First Kings 14. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And then it happened, as often as the king entered the house of the Lord, that the guards would carry them and would bring them back into the guard's room. So what's happening here? Shishak from Egypt shows up on the scene. Now, the writer of Kings merely says that this happens. Okay, fifth year, you know, Shishak shows up. Again, in Chronicles, we get a little more information. So flip back there. Second Chronicles chapter 12, we read verse 1, we'll continue in verse 2. And we read this. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, the Lubim, the Sukim, and the Ethiopians. So Shishak shows up on the scene, but it's not just some random happenstance. It says, because they were unfaithful. God is providing discipline to Judah, and his instrument is the king of Egypt. This is God's chosen instrument of discipline for his people in Judah. Now Shishak was the first king of the 22nd Egyptian dynasty. And his invasion of Judah is recorded in multiple, even non-biblical accounts. The clearest of these is on the Bubastite gate at the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. I've actually been to the Temple of Karnak. This is a picture of the false Egyptian god Amun and Shishak, and they're leading away captives on ropes from this expedition up into judah and to the left of of kind of the false god there you can see a bunch of smaller items these are all hieroglyphic names of cities or people groups that were captured during this campaign and there are numerous judean cities listed on this wall in egypt that verify shishak's campaign up into judah so this was was god's divine instrument of justice Shishak, this king of Egypt, who built this monument to his own greatness, thinking that he had achieved this victory because he was such a powerful and great king and his god Amen was awesome, was actually just a tool in the hand of the Lord to discipline his people in Judah. So that was God's instrument of his discipline. What about his target? God never disciplines randomly or out of frustration or anger as sometimes we earthly parents can find ourselves doing if we're not careful. God always has a target in his discipline. And first we learn that from verse 26 in our first king's text that he plundered both the temple and Solomon's house. It says he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, so that's everything out of the temple, and the treasures of the king's house. That's everything out of the king's palace. And then there's this catch-all phrase, and he took everything. Solomon had amassed an unbelievable amount of wealth. We're told in 1 Kings 10 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver, because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. There was so much gold flowing through Jerusalem and the entire nation of Israel that anything less than gold was worthless. Unbelievably wealthy, and Shishak took everything. He took it all. So what do we learn that God targeted there? Well, he targeted their prosperity. That was one of the things that made them comfortable, remember? they it says when they were established, when they were prosperous, when they were had no worries about, about their survival in the kingdom of Judah, they were relying on their prosperity, so God took it. The second thing we see is back in the, the Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 12, verse 4, after it says that Shishak came, it says Shishak captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem, That's 2 Chronicles 12, 4. So remember all those fortresses that Rehoboam built? We listed them all off there. He built them, he stocked them with spears and shields and food and oil and wine and soldiers, They thought they were invulnerable, and Shishak swept it all away. That was the second thing they were relying on, remember, their prosperity and their security. God targets both of them. He says, oh, you think you're wealthy enough and strong enough that you don't need me? I've got a king that can take all that without even breaking a sweat. Those things aren't going to keep you secure or prosperous. God's intentionally targeting what they were relying on when they gave up their worship of him. In his grace, God takes away the safety blanket from the kingdom of Judah because they need to understand that's not going to save them. He took those things intentionally. It was a targeted discipline. That's a repeated theme in the Bible. So many places you can go to think about that. Immediately when I read this, I thought of Nebuchadnezzar. And a little bit later in Israel's history, we get there. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar at one point is up on his own palace in Babylon. And he says, is not this Babylon awesome that I have built with my own hands for my glory? And I love the way the, the text reads. It says he hadn't even finished speaking and God shows up. And he says, not anymore. He takes his kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar lives with the beasts of the field. Everything he thought was awesome. And that was because he was such a great guy was taken away. Same kind of targeted discipline until he humbled himself. Jesus taught this. Remember in Mark chapter 10, we studied through Mark. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. and He says, Rabbi, what do I need to do to, to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus sort of quickly outlines the Ten Commandments. He summarizes them all. And in Mark 10, 20, the rich young ruler says this. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Well, That's probably not exactly true, but, but in his mind, he's pretty convinced of that. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, Great, you you did all those things? That's good. But here's what you need. You need to sell all your possessions. Then you can come follow me. Why? Are, Are we told that we're not allowed to have wealth, that all of us should sell everything we have? No. Jesus was targeting what the rich young ruler valued more than his God what he relied on. Because what's the next verse after this? Do you guys remember the rich young ruler's response? He walked away sad for he had much. He didn't want to give it up. But Jesus says, look, you want to follow me? You got to give up the thing that you're relying on. The thing that's causing you to think you've got it all on your own without needing God. Same kind of targeted discipline that we see here in 1 Kings 14. So God targets what they're relying on. Now, what about this kind of weird little story we have in verses 27 and 28 in 1 Kings 14? We get this little sort of specific vignette. It says, Shishak took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place, committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Why, why are we getting this little tidbit? Well, the author has two reasons for putting this in here, and the author of Chronicles includes this as well. The shields of gold that they're talking about, Solomon made, and we we read about those back in 1 Kings 10 as well. 1 Kings 10, 16 says, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield, and he made 300 smaller shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now, if you add all that up, that's 500 shields that together weigh 4,125 pounds of solid gold and they're just hanging on the halls in Solomon's house. It was a symbol of his wealth, of his prosperity, of his power. And Shishak took him. The author wants us to know how deep Shishak's plundering of Judah was. He took everything that meant something to the kings of Judah. He took it all. And then there's a second thing that he wants us to understand about this as well. Not just the depths of the plundering, but look what Rehoboam does with these shields in verse 28. Then it happened, as often as the king entered the house of the Lord, that the guards would carry them, that is the shields, and would bring them back into the guards' room. So Rehoboam is so poor now that when he wants to reconstruct all these shields that used to be hanging in his father's house, he has to make them out of bronze. Bronze was cheap. There was no gold left in all of Judah because if there was any at all, the king would have had it. There was none. So he recreates these shields out of bronze. So now he's trying to recreate the pomp of his father's kingdom without the substance. It's a show. He's just trying to keep up the pretense, the display. But worse than that is, is the state of his worship. That's what the author's getting at. It says whenever he went to the temple, so again, Rehoboam didn't completely abandon worshiping God. He just worshiped false gods with him. But he goes to the temple and he carries these shields with him. Do you see what he's doing? He's carrying the very tokens of his idolatry, of his misplaced focus of worship. He's carrying them with him into the temple. He wants to keep up this show so much that when he walks from the the king's palace into the temple, he has his guards carry these 500 bronze fake shields. His heart is not in the right place. His worship is all show and no substance. That's what the author wants us to see. So this is a bad time. God brings his discipline. He targets it specifically to what they're relying on, and, and we see the depths of of their misplaced worship here. But here's where the good part comes. right? This is all sort of depressing after Rehoboam's set up for success. right? Man, everything is failing spectacularly. But here's where we see God show up on the scene, and, and this was awesome as as I studied through this. In the Second Chronicles account, we, we get a little bit more of, of what happens when Shishak shows up. The author of Kings doesn't give us this part, but Second Chronicles chapter 12, continuing with verse 5, says this, Then Shemiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. So, so Shishak came up from the south, Here's a map. He's coming up from Egypt in the south. He comes up. He's come all the way up here to Jerusalem. This is the northern border of Judah, right? All that's Israel. So as Shishak comes up from the south, everybody keeps retreating from fortress to fortress. Finally, they all end up in Jerusalem. This is the last fortified city that Judah has that Shishak hasn't destroyed. So all the leaders and and King Rehoboam are in Jerusalem. God sends Shemaiah to them, the prophet, and says this, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves. So I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. But they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service my service. And the service of the kingdoms of the countries. This is a phenomenal account, right? I mean, w- when we just read that Shishak comes up and sort of destroys everything and takes it all, we're like, well, yeah, Rehoboam was a bad guy. He's a terrible king, right? They, the whole country's in idolatry, so yeah, it sounds about right. Judah gets spanked. No, that's not all that's happening, right? So the, Shishak has come all the way north. Everybody's cowering in fear in Jerusalem because all the fortresses meant nothing. And God sends the prophet and says, look, I'm going to give you an explanation of what's going on. We see God's kindness in this. He offers them an explanation. He owes them none. But he offers them one. He says, look, I'm doing this because you deserted me. So I'm going to show you what your life really would look like without me. I'm giving you up to Shishak. Now, why would God do this? What's his point here? His point is it's an opportunity for repentance. In his kindness, before he completely obliterates them, he gives them an opportunity to repent and go, whoa, we messed up. Now we might think, based on the the verses we've already read, that, that Rehoboam would sort of ignore it and move on, but he doesn't. He actually repents. He and the leaders of Jerusalem humble themselves. That means they admit that they were in the wrong. And it says their response is, the Lord is righteous. Not only are they admitting they were wrong, they're admitting that God was right. They say, yeah, look, this is just. We did abandon you. And, and so this is, this is a just response. We see God's kindness and we're kind of shocked at, at Rehoboam's response. But not just God's kindness. The next thing we see is his mercy because he says, then I won't destroy you. He relents. In his mercy, despite the fact that the, the kingdom has been involved in rampant and detestable idolatry, when they relent and humble themselves now, God says, okay, I won't destroy you. And it says, I will grant them some measure of deliverance. What a great word. That word is actually translated escaped remnant in other parts of the Bible that you can probably put it to. God has done this all throughout the history of his people. He always preserves a remnant. Through the flood, through the famine in Canaan when he sent Joseph to Egypt, as he brings them out of Egypt, there's always a deliverance there. This is God's mercy on display. Next, we see his patience because he says, I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Understand what he's saying there. Saying my wrath is coming on Jerusalem. It just won't be by Shishak now. The implication in the language is is clear that had they not humbled themselves, Shishak was going to wipe out Jerusalem just like all the rest of the fortified cities. But they humbled themselves and he says, my wrath against Jerusalem will not come by means of shishak it's coming because he's a just god and because they need it to steer their hearts back to the worship of him and him alone but he's patient so he says it's only going to come when the time is right and because you just humbled yourself that time is not now god's patience it's amazing on display here but finally his purpose He has a purpose in his discipline as well. Not only was it targeted, but it was purposeful. He says in verse 8 there in 2 Chronicles 12, but they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Again, God doesn't discipline just out of frustration and, and whim. He's teaching them. Look, you abandoned me, and this is what results... When I'm not with you, when you're not following me, this is what your life looks like. You're going to be slaves to Shishak for several years. And that's what happened. Shishak remained in Judah with garrisons and some of his forces for several years. And then after several years, he retreated, and all the Egyptians went back to Egypt. But for several years, Judah was enslaved to Egypt. Now think about what this meant to the Israelites. They'd been slaves to, to nations before. But this was the first time since the Exodus Egypt had ever been masters over the Israelites again. A huge piece of their cultural heritage was God's deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt. They celebrate it every year. Every man, woman, and child in Judah at this time, since they were tiny, has heard about, rehearsed, remembered, and thanked God for his deliverance of them from Egypt. What's that celebration? Passover. And now, despite the fact that every year of their lives, they've celebrated God's deliverance of them from Egypt, they are back under Egyptian slavery. That had an impact on them that you and I can't really fathom. So, I mean, surely this would help them repent long-term, focus them back on the God of their fathers and and worshiping God alone and give up the idols? Unfortunately not. The repentance and humility we see from Rehoboam and the leaders lasted only as long as Shishak did. When he retreated back to Egypt and they were no longer slaves, they no longer humbled themselves and weren't repentant because the only thing we're told about Rehoboam's reign as a whole, even after the Shishak incident, is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. His repentance was short-lived. It was only when they really felt they needed God once again. And when Shishak retreated, so so did their devotion. Why? Well, we know why. We saw why. Because his heart was not set to seek the Lord. He sought Him when it was convenient or it felt necessary, but he was not fixed, established, firmly committed to seeking the Lord. So what do we get out of this last part as we look at God's discipline? Well, we can be tempted to look at Rehoboam as the bad guy in the story, right? And from all of our media input, right, we always want the bad guy to lose. So, okay, good. He got discipline. That's that's sort of what we expect. Rehoboam isn't the bad guy in the story, or he's not the only one. If we see him as the bad guy, then we ought to see ourselves as well. God disciplined Rehoboam and the entire nation of Judah in his kindness in order to turn their hearts back to him, and he'll do the same to you and I because he's a loving father. If our hearts wander from him, he'll bring discipline. Not out of frustration or or anger or childish petulance. He'll bring it because he loves us. And we need to see ourselves in Rehoboam because we have this exact same benefit. God deals with us in the exact same way we saw him deal with Rehoboam here. We need to, to understand that. We experience his kindness in being given an explanation just like Rehoboam was given one. God said, look, this is why this is happening. I need you to understand. What do you think this is? This is our explanation. Rehoboam was given Shemaiah. You and I are given the word. It's God's explanation. Who he is, who we are, how the two of us have to interrelate, we have the same explanation. And we experience the same mercy and patience that the kingdom of Judah did God says, look, I'm not going to pour my wrath out now, not yet. It's coming because I'm just, but I'm going to be patient and merciful. And you and I, we ought to be unbelievably grateful for that, just like all those people cowering in Jerusalem with Shishak camped on the outside. God says, no, not this time. And Shishak turns around. That's the same deliverance we've been given. God says, I'm not bringing my wrath yet, but it is coming. And we know his purpose. Just like there was a specific purpose for Rehoboam and the kingdom of Judah at the time, we know his purpose because it's in his explanation. His purpose, the reason he's waiting to bring his justice, is because he's saving a people for his son. And we have the option to be part of that. See, Rehoboam could have rested on the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah for his faith and his trust, but he didn't. He chose instead to rely on his wealth and his military might, and they both failed utterly. But you and I have that same choice. We can make a better choice than Rehoboam did. We can choose to trust instead in the son that God provides. That's what we ought to do. God may be patient, but it won't be forever. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the reason he's delaying. Ephesians 2, 4-8, through 8, you guys know the passage. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the purpose, so that we have an opportunity to accept Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're set up for success, Bereans. We have everything we need to be staunchly devoted, humble, God-fearing members of his kingdom. We do. We have everything we need. The question is, what will we do with it? Will we get comfortable and let our hearts wander, even if unintentionally? Will we be be careless in our spiritual habits and allow our hearts like an unattended fire hose to worship whatever comes our way? Or will we be devoted and set our hearts to seek the Lord? It takes effort. It takes discipline. But we have everything we need to make it happen. If you're here this morning and you're not one of those that has trusted in Christ and has begun that journey of setting your hearts to seek Him, then I I pray that you would see that the discipline is coming. Out of His justice and His kindness, discipline is coming. But you have a choice. For those that have, we're on that road. We've chosen to follow Christ. May we not become lazy in our comfort and careless in our diligence. May we continually seek every day, daily, to set our hearts to seek the Lord or it will wander. Let's pray. Heavenly and gracious Father, God, we praise you for what we find in your word. For in this account of of your blessings to a nation and a king, squandered as they relied only on on themselves and the prosperity and the security that they had drummed up in their own minds. God, we admit and confess that we are culpable of the same issue that we often become comfortable in our prosperity and our security based on the circumstances which you have given us as a blessing. And Father, we admit that we can become careless. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would help us to set our hearts to seek you and you alone. That we would not add anything to what we worship, but that you would reside as the only item on our to-worship list. That we would read your word, the explanation you've given us daily and eagerly, so that we can understand your reasonings and your holiness and the depths of our need for you. May we be grateful for your mercy and your patience, and not pouring out your wrath, but giving us time to repent. Father, we thank you that your purpose is to save a people for your Son, and that we have the unbelievable blessing of being able to be a part of that people. We thank you and pray that you would direct our hearts today, even as we spend the rest of our Lord's Day going to the service or going home, that, that you would direct our hearts even today towards you. And we thank you for giving us the Spirit to do so. Pray these things in Jesus' name.